Habakkuk 1, 12 through 2, 5. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You will make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Billy Bean. Um, I am the, the pastor of missions here, and it is a high privilege to be able to come to you this morning and just bring to you God's word. Um, last week, Josh Youssef, one of our, our pastors, we have a church that uh, has many pastors and many pastors who are able to teach and preach God's word. And last week, Josh Youssef, he faithfully brought to us um, God's word. He, he really teed us up for uh, this time in Habakkuk. And so I have a passage today uh, in Habakkuk. John Posey will be next week. Uh, Jason Dees will finish our time in Habakkuk. But Josh's passage and, and the way that he preached, it was so faithful and he really put before us this, this big question, this big question that really permeates all of Habakkuk, right? This question of God's sovereignty, this question of his sovereignty and goodness, and how, that, how we can actually uh, hold that together with the suffering that we see in the world, right? So God's sovereignty is goodness and then suffering, so this is a big question, and to be honest, uh, we don't pretend to have all the answers to that question, but Josh so faithfully uh, answered that question or attempted to answer that question by pointing us uh, no further than the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is how we make, of, make sense of suffering in the world that we live in today. And so really what I'm going to do is a little bit different. I'm not, uh, not going to attempt to answer that question any further. But really, um, from our passage today, I want us to see uh, that there is a type of faith, a type of faith that Habakkuk displays in this passage uh, that is still relevant for us today, the type of faith uh, that is sufficient, was sufficient for Habakkuk, was sufficient for the prophets and the people of God, and is still sufficient for us today. 
And so I want to encourage you, um, open up your Bibles, follow along with me in this passage. There's so much here uh, to unpack. And so it's good for you to put your eyes on the passage. And so today's passage, I want us to see three ways, three ways that we as Christians or the people of God have always lived by faith. And this is going to answer the question, how do we, 21st century Christians in Atlanta, Georgia, how do we faithfully live by faith in a secular age? Three ways from the text that we're going to see this. Uh, The first is that we wrestle with God. Secondly, we wait like a watchman. And then thirdly, we live distinctively. Well, how do we wrestle with God? How do we wrestle with God? For me, the first image that comes to mind when we think about wrestling with God is I think of of Jacob, right? Jacob back in Genesis, he literally wrestles with the Lord, like physically wrestles him and they kind of tussle back and forth and he he kind of cries out to the Lord and pleads to the Lord, uh, sort of a a demand of blessing. Lord, bless me. I'm not gonna stop wrestling with you until you bless me. And I think that God can do anything, right? So I suppose that, We could still maybe wrestle God physically. I don't know. God can do anything. But more than likely, the way that we're going to wrestle with God is the way that Habakkuk does uh, in today's passage. Now, you'll remember uh, from last week, uh, Habakkuk is in this time of distress. Okay, He's in this time of distress. The nation of Israel, the beloved people of God, have been in 200 years, so multiple centuries of complete corruption, complete anarchy, violence. And so Habakkuk is in a time where he is just so discouraged. Why are my people acting this way? And you'll remember in the first part of Habakkuk, he sort of cries out to the Lord in in his first complaint, and he acknowledges that the people of God are worthy of judgment. This is the people of God. This is our people. And you'll remember in chapter one, verses four, that things were so bad that the law of God was paralyzed. Things were so bad in the nation of Israel that the, that the law, the perfect standard of God, was unable to render justice. And so Habakkuk, he's completely overwhelmed, and he does uh, what Christians and what people of God have always done. He cries out to the Lord for help, and he says, How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help, and you won't hear? And then God responds, And God responds in a way that is just unfavorable. He responds with an even greater blow to the despair of Habakkuk, telling him that not only is he gonna bring devastating judgment to the people of Judah, but he's actually gonna do it by using a wicked foreign nation to come in and cause devastation. And so then in verses five through 11, Habakkuk, uh, or it, it goes on, the passage goes on to describe the, the depth and the breadth of this dis- destruction. And basically the point is that there is a new day for the people of Israel. And that new day, that new age is the age of the Chaldeans, the age of Babylon. And so here we get to our passage today. And Habakkuk, the mighty prophet of God, he's completely confused, discouraged. But rather than throwing in the towel, rather than dismantling or deconstructing his faith, he instead does what believers in God, the God of scripture have always done. He, he presses in. He presses in by faith. He presses into what seems like contradiction. And he continues to wrestle with God with all of his mind and his spirit. 
And so he begins this second complaint. Now watch how he begins this second complaint uh, here in verse 12. He starts with a confident confession. He begins with this confessional theology. He basically says, God, I know your nature. I know your character. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? And he uses this rhetorical question, but if we read it like a statement of faith, he's basically saying, God, you're eternal. You're eternal from everlasting to everlasting as the psalmist exclaims. In other words, God, you have no beginning or end. You have always been God. I believe this about you. And then he uses the the Hebrew word for the name of God. He uses the covenant name of God. He calls God Yahweh. Oh, Lord, Yahweh. And what he's really saying here is, God, you're my God. This is a personal God. You're the God of my people. You're the God who has promised to always be present with us. You're a covenant-keeping God. I know about your promises. I know about your promises. I remember that you have promised and you have always promised to bless our people through covenant. And then he kind of makes this sort of strange statement uh, that kind of seems out of place. He says, then he says, we shall not die. And so there's some debate on like, why did he all of a sudden, he's saying, God, you're this, you're that, and we shall not die. And some commentators say, well, it was kind of this self-reassurance. He was, he was kind of scared and he was like, okay, God, if this is you, then we're not gonna die. It's this, this, this kind of coping uh, with his fear. But more than likely, what Habakkuk is implying here is that once again, he remembers the promises of God. He remembers that God prom- what he promised to the patriarchs. He remembers what God promised to Israel, what he promised to the nation of David. You've always promised to preserve a remnant. You're not gonna wipe us out completely. I know this to be true, God. You said that you would save and keep a righteous people and that you would perpetuate your saving purposes throughout the ages through a righteous people. And then at the end of verse 12, O Lord, Another statement of faith here. Oh, Lord, you've ordained them, the Chaldeans, as judgment. Okay, God, you're sovereign. You're using this people as your servant. And you, oh, rock, oh, rock, have established them for reproof. And so he continues his confession, but he also says, oh, rock, oh, rock, Lord, that means you're my protector. There's stability with you. This is the foundation of my faith on you. So then how does this make sense? And notice how his wrestle shifts from confession to complaint. Look at verse 13. You, God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you then idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? In other words, God, these Chaldeans, they're traitors. They're evil. They're greedy. They're completely self-consumed. There's nothing getting in their way, and you're just sitting there idly. You're being, it seems like you're being lazy, God. You who can see no evil, you're watching this take place. Look at how the Chaldeans are handling your people. And then we get to verse 14 through 17, and it describes how the Chaldeans are handling the people of the earth. People of the earth, God, you've made them like the, you've made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. <clears throat> They're vulnerable, completely alone. And look at how they handle us. Verse 15, he brings them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And then he rejoices and is glad. So effortless, so easy, so confident in their evil devices, their weaponry. No one's standing in the way. They're just gathering the people. And look at, they're even worshiping the very mechanisms of their success. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net. It's so effortless that he's, he's like, 
that the Chaldeans are like, man, this is, it must be our weapons. So he starts to make offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Uh, my my five-year-old son, he is obsessed with fishing, like so obsessed. The other day he told me in typical five-year-old uh, words, uh, dad, I actually, I think I, lo- I think I love fishing more than I love birthday parties. And of course, I was like, all right, son, well, that kind of makes sense in, in your way. Uh, but he is obsessed with fishing. He likes using a pole, but he really likes using a net. And we just bought him this fishing net uh, last week. It's a really long net. And he's been going by the pond, uh, kind of in the back of our, our, our apartment. He goes to the pond there, and he just drags whatever he can in. And he'll drag these little minnows, these little fish, maybe some turtles. Uh, and he's just having a field day. And these little helpless creatures have no choice. They're going to get dragged in by this five-year-old little boy. Now, some of these fish, you know, die. Uh, Some of them he returns to the water. But this is kind of the image. Uh, Picture picture this to be how the Chaldeans are are gathering in uh, the people. They're treating their victims like animals with no regard to who they catch, no regard to who they kill. This is an enterprise of murderous pillaging, profiteering off the backs of the weak and the vulnerable. And so Habakkuk, uh, in in these first verses, he goes from confession of faith to a faith-filled complaint. Habakkuk saying to God in sum, if I know know, uh, that what you say and how you reveal yourself is true, then how does this square with what I'm seeing happening around me? Will this go on forever? Well, some of you um, might be familiar with this kind of growing and popularizing movement um, that's been kind of sweeping across evangelicalism the last five or 10 years. And this movement is called uh, the deconstruction movement. Um, And perhaps some of you like me, uh, you have some really close friends, some really close friends that have um, uh, so-called deconstructed. Um, I can think of a handful, some of my roommates from, from college. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you here today have, have walked through, you would say you've walked through some kind of personal journey of deconstructing. Now, to be clear, this is a sensitive conversation. It needs to be unpacked, right? There are differing perspectives on deconstruction. I realize that maybe there are some, that there are some positive stories of deconstruction, but it's very complex, right? Deconstructors, they come from different faith traditions. They've, they have different theological presuppositions that they're bringing into their deconstruction. Um, there's just so many variables, and so I want to be sensitive. But if, if faith construction is basically this, the journey of a Christian who puts his faith journey on the table and he looks at it and he dissects it and he examines the parts that he perceives to be, he or she perceives to be rotten, he throws those out, then he starts to build his faith back up. Well, that in, in basic definition doesn't sound so bad, right? A little spring cleaning, you, get, you clean out the, the skeletons in the closet, doesn't sound all that bad. But the problem is, especially with my friends who have deconstructed, is that most of them, heartbreakingly so, have never gotten back around to building back up their faith. And actually, as a matter of fact, most of them have walked away with great anger towards Christianity, shaking their fists uh, at God. So I'm thinking of my friends, and and it breaks my heart. And and I've been trying to think, like, what is it about them? What is the common denominator in all of my friends' particular stories of, of deconstruction? And I think it's this. They've chosen 
to assign authority, the authority of truth, to their subjective experiences, the realities of their doubt, their church hurt, their their suffering in this world, the the question of evil, all of these things um, they've experienced. And they've chosen to put a lot of trust and, um, and come under the authority of their experiences. And listen, I never want to minimize experience, right? We've all been through Devastating things. We live in this life filled with suffering. And so I don't want to minimize that. And I pray for my deconstructing friends. As a matter of fact, I still interact with them. I pray for them. Uh, I want their healing. But I want us to pick up on a key difference here between Habakkuk's wrestle of faith and the supposed wrestle of faith from my deconstructing friends. You see, Habakkuk, in, in this passage, you'll see that he actually affirms two realities and holds them in tension. He doesn't doesn't affirm one reality at the expense of another. He affirms both of them. God, you are eternal. You are good. You can see no evil. You're pure. I trust you. You're a covenant-keeping God. I believe this to be true about you. But at the same time, I'm confused about what I see around me, all of these things that are happening. It doesn't really make sense with who you say you are. But Habakkuk holds on to both of these realities. He holds both these together and he goes to God and wrestles with both of them together. Now, here's the thing. I get it, guys. We live in a world uh, that is difficult to live out our faith, right? We live in this secular age, Atlanta, 2023, and it's hard to live in a secular age. Doubt, skepticism, these things permeate our culture, and it's, it's hard to even ask questions, right? We, we ask certain questions or the wrong questions. We might get, um, you know, canceled or we might, uh, you know, someone might just uh, turn a blind eye to our questions. It's a difficult time to live out our faith. But I know this, I know this. The God of Habakkuk is still the God of today. He's still the God of today. And here's what he wants from us. Like Habakkuk, he wants us to press in more deeply into his character. He wants us to go into his character with confidence. He wants us to dig in with our questions and our doubts. As a matter of fact, this God, the God of the Bible, he invites our questions and wants those questions to lead to more questions. Now, he doesn't want to grumble, right? We see all across scripture, there's there's the sin of grumbling. Grumbling is a faithless complaint. And we see uh, that kind, of, uh, that kind of, um, of complaint is strongly spoken against in the scripture. But the kind of complaint that he wants here is Habakkuk's complaint. It's a faith-filled complaint. This is the type of complaint we see all over the Bible. It's what we call lament, right? We see it in the Psalms. We see it in Job, Lamentations. It's the kind of complaint that doesn't shake the hand, your hand at God and curse him because of the difficulty and confusing trials of life. Rather, it's the type of complaint that is this honest struggle of doubt by faith for faith. I was studying uh, Habakkuk this last week and one, commenda- one commentator, David Pryor, says this about Habakkuk. He said Habakkuk was so free to be so blunt with God because he plumbed the depths and found underneath the solid foundation of the everlasting rock. He found God's eternal changelessness. Friends, our, our, our confessions, our confessions of faith and our faith-filled complaints, our doubts, these things are not in contradiction to each other. 
The Lord uses both of these. Actually, he uses both of these as a means of strengthening our faith. He doesn't use one and not the other. He uses both of them to strengthen our our faith. It's actually through our struggles with God. That's exactly where he wants us. Our struggles through the trials and the sufferings of our faith. He wants us to be there so our faith can grow. And this is, this is exactly what the Apostle James was getting at uh, when he was trying to encourage persecuted Christians. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, so the wrestling with your faith, it produces steadfastness. And, the stead, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so... Friends, we worship a God who invites our confessions and our complaints together. Don't be afraid to wrestle with him. Wrestle with this God by faith. Pour out your complaints on him. As the psalmist says, I will pour out my complaints on you. And I want to encourage you not to do this alone. Part of how we wrestle with God is not this individual tussle with God. Part of his design is that he's designed the church. And so we actually wrestle with God, not alone, but with each other. There, there are so many people in this church, all of us um, have stories of discouragement, of suffering, of pain. And I know that there are so many people here that would want to encourage you, that would want to come alongside you in your doubt in, with your questions. And we have a text to pastor line. People ask questions all the time, difficult questions. We don't pretend to always have the answer, but we wrestle with them through doubt. We have a, a counseling center where we want to wrestle with people through seasons of pain and doubt and suffering. So don't do it alone. Well, we live out our faith by wrestling with God, but we also live by faith while we wait on God's answer. We wait like a watchman. Well, Habakkuk, um, he's just given this confident, faith-filled complaint to God, and now he's here to wait for God's second answer. And notice how he postures himself as he waits. Look at chapter two, verse one. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the watchtower. So, all right, it's chaos, but I'm gonna go up to the watchtower and I'm gonna sit. I'm completely overwhelmed. The enemy's approaching, but I trust you, God. I'm gonna wait for you. I expect an answer. I know an answer's gonna come. And so he does what the prophets have always done. He goes up there and he waits and he watches for the Lord's answer. Now, I've been thinking uh, and studying a little bit about the role of the watchman. And the role of the watchman was one of the most important roles that you could have had in ancient Israel. It wasn't a position exclusively held for prophets. However, every prophet had the role of a watchman uh, in their job description. Hosea 9.8 um, talks about the prophet Hosea. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim, the people of my God. Uh, Isaiah 21.6, God to the prophet Isaiah, for thus the Lord says to me, go station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. You see um, God call his prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So the prophets, they were watchmen. Now, if you were just kind of an ordinary watchman of the seventh, uh, in seventh century BC, here's what it would have required. It would have required a tenacious mind that could just sit and endure long periods of sustained focus. The coming approach of the enemy was always potentially imminent, 
Messengers were coming to and fro, kingdoms, right? Couriers were coming back and forth to report important news. Traders were coming in from outside kingdoms to import their goods. And so the watchmen needed to be able to keep a close tab on the the coming and going activity of his kingdom. A watchman needed to have a level of discernment. He couldn't just see the approach in the coming and going. He needed to know exactly what was going on. Is there anything out of the ordinary here? Traffic patterns, scheduled arrivals. What is there anything that just kind of looks a little bit weird here? Watchmen needed to have full perspective. If you think of a watchtower as connected to a wall, on the one side you had the city. On the other side, you had the horizon, right? You had the distance. And so uh, the watchman needed to have full perspective. He needed to pace back and forth. I'm going to look and see what's happening in the city. What are some of the in-front-of-me realities? Is there security? But then he would have to go and look out to the horizon, right, into sort of the future approach. Now, tons to learn about uh, the posture of a, of a watchman. <clears throat> but as a spiritual watchman, Here's what Habakkuk's doing. He's planted, and his goal is singular. His his focus is singular. He wants to watch and wait, and he's willing to wait and watch as long as it takes for God to give an answer to his complaint. And so I want us to to notice that when I say he's willing to, to wait and watch as long as it takes, there's something so instructive about that for us. In this hurried age, we, we live in the most impatient and instant generation in human history. The other day, I actually got mad uh, that I had to wait more than a day to get a book. I actually ordered the book. I'm like, dude, I'm going to get this today. And it didn't come. It came the next day. And I actually, <clears throat> I actually got a little bit mad. And I had to have like this moment of like, what kind of a world do I live in? We hate waiting. We hate waiting, especially in a city like ours, right? Atlanta, efficiency. Efficiency is the highest virtue in in our city, right? If you want something in Atlanta, go out there and get it. Like, you don't have to wait. As a matter of fact, if you wait, it's going to cost you financially. Time is money, right? Instant gratification, instant solution. That's the air that we breathe, and, and I don't want to disparage that completely. Like some of that's a good thing. It's amazing. Like the Lord is just sort of uh, providentially working through our city, the hustle and bustle of our city, and that's a great thing. But my worry is that for many of us as Christians living in a city like Atlanta, we might be tempted to actually let the, the pace and the push of our culture start to inform how we live, how we move, and how we breathe in the Christian life. And so my concern is that this good old-fashioned discipline of grace, waiting on the Lord, is kind of going out of style, especially in difficult times, right? When we go through difficult times, we don't like that. And so we want to find a solution. We don't like being discomfort. We don't like feeling discomfort. We want to have an immediate solution, right? I'm going through a hard time. So you know what? I have at my fingertips a self-help guide. I'm going to go uh, solve this problem. I'm going to go get more uh, medication. I'm going to go to the doctor. And we do all of these things. And we so quickly, um, uh, we, we so quickly um, turn away from what the Lord might want to do through us as we wait. And we turn to our own devices, our money, our skills, whatever it is. And my fear is that uh, in the pace of our culture, we might miss uh, what it is that the Lord wants to do through his means of grace of waiting. 
When I uh, first moved here about eight months ago, I remember asking someone, I'm from the West, I'm from Arizona, I'd never really been to Atlanta. I think I like, flew through the airport. Never been to Atlanta. When I first got here, I remember asking someone, what are Atlantans like? What are Atlantans like? And this person, he said something that was just like, I, use, I, I say this all the time, but he, he said, uh, Atlanta, Atlantans are doers first and beers second. I can, you know, in Arizona, we're kind of like beers first. You know, we just kind of like chill and we're outside and then we, we do some things as well. Um, but Atlantans are doers first before they're beers. And what he uh, went on to say is that Atlantans work really hard. They do. They do things really hard so that they can be a certain kind of person with a certain kind of lifestyle. And there's something really attractive about that. Once again, I want to disparage that. Some of that is really great. But... As Christians, we have to understand that the order of that is actually flipped. As Christians, fundamentally, we are beers first. It's out of who we are in the Lord that we do things for his glory. It's actually who we are that changes everything about what we do and how we do it. We do things out of who we are. And one of the main things that we as Christians do out of who we are is we wait We wait patiently on the Lord in this chaotic world. We're to be spiritual watchmen like Habakkuk. I was thinking, who are some great examples of spiritual watchmen like Habakkuk in my life? Um, And my stepdad came to mind. My stepdad, Mike, he's a simple man uh, from Oklahoma, and he's weathered some storms in his life. And just this last week, he went in for an operation and he's had inflammation in multiple lymph nodes. And so the doctors have, have said, okay, I mean, it looks like it's, it's lymphoma, but we just wanna take some of these out and biopsy the lymph nodes. And the preliminary results came back on Friday and um, no lymphoma. And, and, and on the one hand, okay, praise God. But the doctors are still a little bit concerned. Okay, what is it? What's happening with you? So the doctor said, you know what? Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait longer. And we're going to send these results off to Mayo Clinic to be examined further. And so uh, it's likely that we won't know exactly what's happening with my stepdad until after the 4th of July. But this waiting, it's not difficult for my stepdad um, and, and even my mom. You know what? characterizes their posture, they're confident in their God. My stepdad, Mike, he has a simple but confident faith. He looks to, the God, he looks to his God with rock-solid faith. My mom and Mike, they're willing to wait as long as it takes to get an answer for something uh, like a preliminary report. They've waited on things before in their life. And waiting is good for them, and they understand this because they know that waiting reminds them who is God. Waiting reminds us who is God, right? It reminds us that God is omniscient, not us. And so my parents, they pray to him every single day. They pray to him while they wait. They stay close to the word of God. They've lived long enough to know that waiting causes them to persevere. They know that they have an unseen future hope that extends way beyond next week's results um, I think this is what the Apostle Paul gets at in Romans 8, 24. He says, now hope is that, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so my, my stepdad and my mom, 
Their hope and joy is not dependent on what they see unfolding around them. They've seen some crazy things in their life, as many of you have, but their hope isn't dependent on that. It's not dependent on whether or not the the results are positive or negative. Um, They have hope and joy like Habakkuk. Like him, they can say to the Lord, God, you're from everlasting to everlasting. We shall not die. You see, they know that their hope is in this promised eternity that's been given to them by faith. They trust in their covenant God. Well, Habakkuk gives us this helpful picture about what it looks to live by faith through wrestling with him, waiting for him like a watchman. But he also shows us how by faith, we as the people of God, we live distinctively. We live distinctively marked by our righteousness. And so at this point, Habakkuk, he's waited on the watchtower for the Lord to answer his complaint. And then here it comes. Here comes the answer. Verse uh, chapter two, verse two. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. And so God is saying, write down what I'm about to say to, to, to tell you. It needs to be easily understood. Write it on some stone. It needs to be permanent. When God asks his people to write things on stone, it's a big deal, right? I mean, think Moses, Sinai, 10 commandments on stone. So God is saying, this is important. It needs to be permanent. And this message needs to be propagated to everyday people. This is why these people are running. They're everyday people running through life to and pro in the, to and fro in the marketplaces, in the streets. This needs to be plain to everyone who sees it. Think about the, the giant billboards that we pass by every day on the interstate, right? I-75, you know, Chick-fil-A every day. There's this message, Chick-fil-A, and it's delicious. And I'm like, wow. But there's that message, right? This, this billboard. And God is asking Habakkuk really to do the same thing, to make it like a billboard. Look at verse four. Let's skip down to verse four. The vision is here. The vision arrives. Behold, his soul is puffed up. His soul is puffed up, meaning the unrighteous. And I think that this verse is talking about uh, not only the Chaldeans, but actually talking about the, the, the Israelites as well. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And there we have it. One of the most important statements in all of the Bible. This is the billboard Okay, picture that billboard. This is the billboard of the Christian life. The righteous shall live by faith. This uh, vision, the righteous shall live by faith. You'll notice in in the passage there, it says it will hasten uh, to the end. That means that there is an end to this vision, but it didn't end with Habakkuk, right? This vision continues forward. And that's why we see this passage quoted eight centuries later in the New Testament, three times by the Apostle Paul. This is the bedrock theological idea for the entire book of Romans. The righteous are made, those who are righteous are made so by their faith. Okay, so I, I want to give a quick definition of faith here so that we can understand what righteousness is. What is faith? Faith is the unwavering confidence in what God has and will accomplish for his covenant people. Faith is the unwavering confidence in what God has and will accomplish for his covenant people. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, as as Hebrews 11 talks to us about. And actually, Hebrews 11, it's a great chapter. It's this hall of faith. uh, uh, the, The writer of the Hebrews, he explains the faith of the Old Testament saints. This faith of the Old Testament saints is the same faith 
that we have as New Testament, uh, New Testament saints. And so he talks about how Abraham, Moses, David, and Samuel were counted or credited righteous by their faith. Hebrews 11. And then we see all over the New Testament this same idea that righteousness is credited. It's a credited righteousness, credited to sinners by faith. Okay, so just gave you a definition of faith. Through our faith, we get righteousness. But what then is righteousness? What is true righteousness? J. Gresham Machen, he's um, an early 20th century theologian. He said that that's actually the most important question that any human being could ask. What then is true righteousness? Or in other words, how can I stand before God? What is true righteousness? And here's the thing. I, I actually don't think Habakkuk seemed to fully know that answer. If you look back at verse 13 in our passage, when uh, Habakkuk asks how God could use the Chaldeans to swallow up a people, look at how he says it. How could you use the Chaldeans to swallow up a people more righteous than they? See, there seemed to be a smidge of self-righteousness in Habakkuk's perspective, almost like he understood righteousness to have levels. Okay, God, like we're bad, we deserve judgment but we're definitely more righteous than the, than the uh, Chaldeans. It seems like Habakkuk missed the words of David in Psalm 14. He would have maybe seen these words, but it, maybe he missed them when David says that none is righteous. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Our best works are like filthy rags before a righteous and perfect God, before the perfect standard of the law. No one does good. And so Habakkuk doesn't seem to really understand true righteousness. And here's the thing. I don't think that we as Christians live like we understand true righteousness either. We often live like we don't understand it. Um, Martin Luther, he's a, a, a reformer. He made sense of how we get righteousness um, through what he called the great exchange. And you've heard Jason talk about this before uh, in sermons, but really the great exchange is, is kind of an articulation of the core of the gospel. And the great exchange is this. This is how we get righteousness. You and I are sinful. We're completely corrupted. We have, the stain of sin has affected us. We cannot stand before the Lord. We're separated from him. But God in his mercy enters into his creation as, uh, into his creation, uh, as Jesus. He takes on flesh. And then he goes to the cross. And he goes onto the cross and he takes upon himself our account of sin, our death penalty that we deserve for our sin. He takes that upon himself. And in exchange, God credits to Jesus he, and, uh, God credits to us Jesus's account of perfect righteousness. And so uh, let me explain it more simply. Uh, Jesus gets our account, our sin, our penalty, takes it upon himself, and in exchange, he gives us his righteousness, his account. This is the great exchange, and it's found in Christ alone. So that tells us what it is. This is what happens on the cross, but how do we actually get it? How do we get this credited righteousness? Well, it's by faith alone, it's by faith alone, by faith, the righteous shall live by faith alone in the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. It's through faith that we get perfect righteousness. We get Christ's account rendered to us. Ephesians 2, right, tells us that for by grace we have been saved, by faith. 
This is not of our own doing. If it was of our own doing, we, we would have reason to boast and brag. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. Now, this is the message of the gospel. I think we need to be reminded of this daily. I need to be reminded of this daily, especially in this city of doers, right? Living the Christian life in Atlanta, we can so quickly be tempted to think that we can earn favor. Uh, the way that we earn favor from God is the way we earn favor in the world, right? I want to get a promotion. Um, I want to, to, to do well. I want to be thought of uh, well in my community. I want to earn the favor of my neighbors. And so very quickly, we can start to think this way. But we need to be reminded over and over again that true righteousness has nothing to do with who we are in society. Being righteous is a credited righteousness that's supplied to us by faith in Jesus. It's Jesus's righteousness uh, on our account, when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. And this is supplied to us by faith. It is a credited righteousness. So we need to be reminded of this daily. Guys, I'm, I'm a pastor. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't make me righteous, right? Far from it. The righteousness that I have is Christ's righteousness. So we need to be reminded of this. And those of you who have not yet trusted in Jesus, if you're still looking for righteousness in all the things of the world, if you're still looking for righteousness uh, or favor through your deeds or through your accomplishments or through approval of men, it's time for you to stop. Turn to God. Turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and David, and Habakkuk, the God of Christ's covenant, the God who made himself known most clearly in this great exchange, most clearly in the, in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Stop looking for righteousness in the world. Look upon his spotless righteousness. Here's the truth. None of us are ever going to measure up to the standard that we seek. If we seek a standard that is outside of Christ, we're never gonna measure up, ever. Nothing that the world can offer is gonna measure up. No other religion in the world is going to offer you a way uh, to measure up. It's never gonna be enough. And here's the thing. You're also never gonna measure up to a holy and righteous God. It's never gonna happen. This is the God who justly brought wrath upon the people of Judah and the Chaldeans and all the other kingdoms. You're never gonna measure up to that God. You're also never gonna measure up to his son, Jesus, who he rightfully brought uh, wrath, uh, who he brought wrath upon. But here's the good news. Jesus has measured up on your behalf. Jesus has lived perfectly. Jesus has died sufficiently. He's died sufficiently. We shall not die because he's died sufficiently. And he was raised powerfully. We shall not die. He was raised powerfully. So let's trust in him by faith and live distinctively marked by Christ's righteousness. And then church, I want us to press on together through the ages. This faith is sufficient for us across the ages. So let's press on as we wrestle with God, as we wait like watchmen, and as we live distinctively by faith in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are, it's just incredible that we can even come to you in prayer. 
Who are we to stand before a holy and righteous God, but by the work of your son, Jesus Christ, we thank you for accomplishing salvation on the cross for us. We thank you that by faith, you've credited uh, to us the righteousness of your son, Jesus. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit, that your spirit uh, changes our affections. It makes us more like you. The spirit in us, because of Christ's righteousness, actually produces righteousness in us. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. God, I pray that we would not forget the gospel. We'd be reminded of it. I pray that if we don't know you, we would turn to you. This is the hope for the world and we're so thankful for it. I pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen.